Previously on Storyological. <laughs> <laughs> what is a moomin? What's a bloomin' moomin? Hippo-esque creatures that... I don't really remember what they did, but they bimbled around they picking flowers. Around? Bimble? Bimbled? Mm-hmm. Bibbled? Bimble. Bimble. For sure. This is Storyological, a podcast about amazing stories. That we kind of like. I'm Chris Camerood. And I'm E.G. Kosh. My pick for this week is The Poetics of Sex by Jeanette. Winterson, Jeanette Winterson, perhaps pronounced in an American accent rather than a weird French accent since she's British. I doubt she pronounces her name as Jeanette. Um, the Poetics of Sex is a story in her collection, The World and Other Places. The story, The Poetics of Sex, is, it is a story about two women, one of them who is called Picasso and one of them who is called, I believe, I. <laughs> Yeah, that, uh, it's such a common name in fiction. Yeah, it is. And it's a story about their relationship. There, there are two particularly amazing things that are happening. One, Jeanette Winterson's words. Uh, two, she structured the story such that each section begins with a question. Questions such as, why do you sleep with girls? Or, which one of you is the man? Or, don't you find there's something missing? Uh, yeah, so it is the story of their relationship told through this structure, as though each section was an answer to the question. Part of the, the loveliness is the, mm, the variance of the way the sections answer, which sometimes feels strident and a direct blow to the question, sometimes feels indirect, as almost your question is so stupid, I'm going to talk about this other thing, and then, oops, accidentally, I also answered your question. Uh, so those two amazing things are working so well together because... You could be tempted to read the lushness of this prose. Such lines as the beginning of the story, which is my lover Picasso is going through her blue period. In the past, her periods have always been red, radish red, bull red, red like rose hips bursting seed, lava red when she was called Pompey and in her destructive period, the stench of her, the brack of her, the rolling, splitting cunt of her, squat like a sumo, ham thighs, loins of pork, beefy uppercuts and breasts of lamb, I can steal her heart like a bird's egg. You would be tempted to be like, oh, this is going to be one of those Wankistani stories. It's going to be all language and whoop-de-doo, these people have emotions. But framing it with the questions does one thing right away, which is it makes the conflict in your face. The whole story is in conflict with some, at first, unnamed asker. So it seems to just be society. But then, like any great writer, she just pulls a trick and is like, well, we're just going to pretend these questions came from this one idiot named mm-hmm. Fayon. Um, Fayon. But also, the the story, the other she should, thing she does is two things. One, her descriptions often contain within them a conflict and a pain that is powering the story. And two, the, the, the languaginess does not prevent, but instead propels her into scenes, into moments of the conflict between these two women. So there's no separation. There's no separation between the lushness of the language or the tussle of the emotions or the the forces pulling apart and at these two women. Yeah, that, that's it. They are battered by the questions of, of society, of this one guy, Fayon, but also battered by the love that they have for each other and the kind of emotional violence that is sometimes wonderful and desired by both of them and sometimes horrible and breaks them apart and and it is inside every sentence god when i read that first paragraph that you read out i was like holy shit 
this woman knows how to bludgeon me to death with like I don't know a dripping bloody heart of prose and I was so excited about it and then you know gradually as I went through the story and every paragraph pretty much contains the same level of uh of weight of of bludgeoning I I actually began to feel a bit exhausted by it and I think that you know, on reflection, after reading it again, I think that that actually works to demonstrate what what you were saying, that the conflict, the, um, the aggression that this couple receive from Feon, from society, from their flatmate, I think it is, uh, a dude who wants to be a lesbian, who doesn't like it when to hear them make love next door. And then it kind of, you get to this point of exhaustion, and then that's when... She talks about their breakup and them being driven apart. And so she she really allows you to kind of ride the crest of this wave of prose into this deep sadness of, of them being split apart. And that's incredibly powerful and made me think of um, the poet Carol Ann Duffy and her collection Rapture, which contains the same kind of visceral love and in the flesh acceptance and enjoyment of of love and the physical act of love it can be as so many things are just a personal predilection whether or not you are energized by such forceful prose or feel exhausted i uh, in an imagined objective position let's say <laughs> um feel like i it wasn't that I was exhausted. I was concerned. <laughs> this just sounds so patronizing. Concerned for its well-being. Um, but oh well. What? Concerned for its well-being. I was concerned for my enjoyment of the story, let's say. I was worried at the beginning that the, um, that lushness of prose, it was going to sweep through all of this emotion and ultimately, yeah, kind of exhaust me and that it was going to hit me with emotion, emotion, emotion. And I was going to have to, what was going to feel exhausting to me was to work through the language, to get a grasp on who these people are, what they wanted, why they were afraid, all of these things that are really often the negatives that are attached to, you know, what Clarion Class would call a Wankistan story, where the, the writer is in so in love with the language that they may lose track of character or plot. But, um, but really quickly in this story, before, before they were going to fall apart, very early when there were these two paragraphs where Picasso is described as performing miracles, but they are of the kind and ordered by her rule of thumb to the lower regions. She goes among the poor with every, every kind of salve, unmindful of reward. Which, yes, is not specifically saying she's going out and having sex with lots of women. But that is how I thought she might meant it. And then was like, when the next paragraph begins, I have been jealous. I was like, okay, yes, that is what you're talking about. Or there's a line in that section where Jeanette describes them. She says, we were by the sea yesterday and the sea was heavy with salt so that our hair was braided with it. There was salt on our hands and in our wounds where we'd been fighting. And at that point, I was like, at this point in the story, we've seen how they've met. We've seen how their first fight began. We've seen how it's wounded them. And I was like, okay. Mm. I get it. This this story, you're, 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 you're bringing the pain, you're bringing the conflict, you're letting dangle before us the idea that all of this will go horribly wrong. 
Now I'm not just reading because I love your words. I'm reading because I want to know how your words are going to push me through the pain of these two people. I still would have liked just a smidge more motion in the story, or at least being able to grasp the motion more easily, more readily. I don't know. I guess if we think, if I think of it like poetry, something that I will go back to time and time again and get something different out each time, then, then damn, it's perfect. But if I think of it more in the realms of story, then there were moments where I was frustrated at having to reread sections and be like, what is happening there? People are going to come to the story and feel that way. I hear that. For me, this story, I have such a clear sense of who these people are and the emotions that have pulled at them and like who they specifically are in terms of an art teacher um, and a student, in terms of the world that they inhabit the questions that are thrown at them from society. For me, the story had a clarity and a specificity to it that created a reality in my mind that far outstripped a reality that just comes from being plain in your mm. language. Mm. And there were, there were certainly sections that were so clear and lucid and important that I would go back again and again to to read and understand more of it like like the section where she talks about how many how many rules there are out in society implying implying for women like stay inside shut your mouth close your legs but then she flips that on on its head and talks about the island that she makes with picasso and that no man can invade it and in the reality that she creates inside this story the reality of the physical gyrating passion of it is is so big that it's like shouting to the world it's like fuck you no matter what you think about lesbians what you think about women we are here and we are real and we matter we exist and you dudes cannot understand or be part of that and we are okay with that yeah, there is, you know, when you say that there was no movement, for me, there was both a physical movement in the sense of them meeting and them being jealous and them them finding a way to be together and then there being a, a danger that, oh no, actually they'll split apart. But there was also an emotional movement where at some points, yeah, like you described, there's just such anger, an amazing passage where she describes them taking forbidden words and exploding them and and... and freeing them basically freeing those words and there there's one moment at the end of that forbidden word passage where the anger in a sense kind of slips away and it's kind of amazing triumph where she's like there's this one word that you wouldn't give us and we've got it and that's happy we are happy and it's right after that where it's like oops i might have lost her and i was like oh yeah that's good good story stuff there's uh, one passage that i want to read and goes like this slowly now picasso where the falling light hits the floor Lie with me in the bruised light that leaves dark patches on your chest. You look tubercular, so thin and mottled, quiescent now. I picked you up and carried you to the bed, dusty with ill use. I found a newspaper under the sheets, advertising rationing. Now there is, there is a you know, passage that, it's poetic. Like good poetry or good story, though, those images are not just describing something. They are revealing character. They are revealing conflict. That, that light looks like bruises. Mm. the um, Picasso looks ill-used there's something scary and then there's the conflict while poetically delivered that I feel like is is it's just screaming off the page the newspaper 
advertising rationing. Because there's a bit where she goes back to that about love being treated as something that is scarce, that you have to hold into these certain forms. And she's like, no, it is this abundant, beautiful, painful thing that, that permeates us and surrounds us. And the answer is not, not to hold it to these little snippets that we allow ourselves, but to let it go. And it's, and it's right there. Very beautiful. And that feeling you had ultimately at the end was the exact worry I had at the beginning. And for me, it dissipated as I became a part of a story of two people. Mm. That's really, it's, it's, so, it's so much. Just can you hold in your mind the image of a person or sentient thing telling you this story? Do you have an idea of who they are and what they want and what they're afraid of or angry about? If so, you you can get many people through so much. No matter how plain your language or how weird, if people are unsure about the person at the center of the story, what they want, what they're afraid of, it's tough. Uh, the Boat and Me is my pick for this week. It's written by Tove Jansen and from her collection, A Winter Book. You may know Tove Jansen from her, uh, her, her career work. in The Supreme. <laughs> no. no. Abba? No. From her work as the writer of The Moomins, or I think as they were on TV here, The Moomin Trolls, those delightful hippo-esque creatures that, I don't really remember what they did, but they bimbled around they picking flowers. Around? Bimble? Bimbled? Mm-hmm. Bibbled? Bimble. Bimble. For sure. They bimbled about. Is that a real word? Um, Real in the sense that lots of people use it. Whether or not it's in the dictionary, I don't uh, know. Well, I mean, that's that's real. That's yeah, real. That's real in your I mean, it's not world. real in the sense that I make up words, <laughs> which is a different, some would say, realer form of real. Uh-huh. Um, so, not all of Tove's writing is for or about kids, but this story that I have picked is about a 12-year-old girl. And she lives uh, on the Finnish coast somewhere. And for her 12th birthday, she gets a boat. And she decides that what she's going to do is row it around the whole of the archipelago. Um, and she does this just because it, it seems like it just needs doing. It's the thing, yeah, you know, yeah. once it's done, I'll have drawn a line around it and then everybody That's can good. be happy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love just the flat out states, character states at the beginning. I don't know why I wanted to do it. Yeah. And which leads me to my first thing that I adored about this story. Thing which, one. Thing one. Colon. Thing the first is... I loved how opinionated the little girl was. She's mm. like, this is the way the world works. This is what needs to happen. I need to row around the whole island. Dad said you must never wave at sea because that's a completely irresponsible thing to do. You only do that when you're mm -hmm. uh, in danger. Yeah. And so it seems shark like... Attack. <laughs> shark attack. Lightning. Lightning attack. Not that attack. many sharks off the Finnish coast, I don't um, think. Moomin attack. 100%. If you see a moomin in the water, run. Um, <laughs> you get the sense that a lot of these epithets or at least this way of looking at the world comes from her dad but she has absorbed it and created it it created it in her own way and it has resulted in this desire to sail around the whole archipelago yes which brings me to my first thing uh which is i love that right the um, she might not know why she's planned this plan and maybe we don't know why she's planned this plan but the you're bringing up the the dad. The story revolves around her and 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 her opinions about herself and the world, and in her mom and dad and the two versions of the world they represent. In 
delineating the, the lines between the daughter and her parents. That the, the, the characters of the mom and dad, who in a sense are side characters and, and just kind of drift about on the sidelines, are never described by the kid in the sense of, this is what my mom and dad looked like, or this is the way my mom and dad thought about the world. Almost everything was given as, here is something that my mom said, or here is something that my dad said, or here is something my mom did, here is something that my dad did. And in that way, we begin to to grasp through like her mom keeping the secret of this rowboat, because they had to keep it from the dad. Can't let the dad hear oh, yeah, about it. Oh yeah, the mom finds and, her leaving. Yeah, the mom finds her leaving, and the mom on the shore waves at her goodbye, and that's when the kid's like, well, I mean, that's cool, but I'm not going to wave, because dad said don't wave. <laughs> and her mom packs sandwiches, one of which has a little note on it, mm. which is... Long live freedom. Which the kid immediately is like, silly. That's silly. And yet, that right there, it can give you, okay, yeah, so maybe you don't know why you're going on this crazy boat trip, but you are setting off on your own on a boat on the ocean, despite what your dad wants. And then your mom's like, long live freedom. So your mom has an idea why you're doing it. And it's this great description of, of the kid's opinion being like, I'm pretty sure mom mm. uh, could never convince her own dad to let her do anything. And then the kid says, it's a terrible century. I guess referring to whatever century her mom came from. <laughs> yeah. That whole century was worthless, man. You couldn't even keep secrets from your dad and do stuff. And in the same way, I love how, like you said, she has imbibed a lot of the dad saint, even though the dad seems like the stern uh, authoritative force with who might be the antagonist. Uh, it's just beautifully um, shaded because it's so clear how much that she has absorbed mm. her dad's beliefs about the world. Her trip around the archipelago does not end in disaster, but it does end with her father coming to um, fetch her back in his uh, motorboat and they, they tow her little rowboat home. And in that rowboat, you they don't really say anything to each other. Her dad says, well, what you're doing, it's almost criminal. And yeah, then also, God, you're making your mom worry so much. Yes, okay, yes, that's another point I want to get to. But the we don't they don't say anything else to each other because the engine starts. And so we just have access to her thoughts and we see her think things like, um, oh, I know dad really loves uh, sailing across the sea, so I'm just going to let him have that. Like, she's kind of on the cusp of developing empathy, right? She see, she definitely sees her parents are these real things, but it seems like she's not necessarily understanding exactly how they feel about her or what they might be feeling at any one time, where maybe she is perspe perspective. <laughs> perspective. Oh, God, you're so perspective. Come perceptive. On. Oh, perceptive. Um, but she is doing it in such a way that an adult might think is silly or inappropriate. Um, you know, we're never really given access to that. But I, I delight in the ways that we we see her think about things and how she knows every crook and cranny of the island, and she completely judges, tries to uh, you know assume what her dad is thinking as they row as they go home, in the way that also she judges some. Um, people who are out on a pleasure boat while she's rowing around the island and she says it's beneath me to even favor them with a glance again it's like something she's absorbed from her dad from him saying that those those reckless kids out there driving their boats too fast but what makes the kid the, the kid is that she thinks am i being unfair to them yeah i expect so <laughs> yeah. um she she's she a little bit of her mom and a little bit of her dad 
that is what was particularly delightful for to me um what was the thing you said um in the boat uh, that i said i wanted to come back to um uh, okay I'll, I'll loop you back to that but one thing um yeah, I can hear in your description of the of the the silliness that might be attributed to her. You know, not homophobia, but like the ingrained kind of of childish, like prejudice against against children and a kind of way they see the world that is supposedly obviously less. And uh, you're right; maybe someone would look at her in that way. But the you know the story in no way perpetuates that idea. Uh, and I really love that. And I loved how it almost felt like in the boat, in our experience of it. She uh, she feels rendered more perceptive than the dad. Like mm-hmm. her dad eats all the sandwiches. That doesn't seem, it, it, if at the very least, it doesn't seem very kind because it seems like it would have been like your mom gave these to you. But but whether it's the kid or it's the way that, or, or the way that Tove has rendered it, that scene is in, in itself wise because that's the moment where the kid says she knows that the dad loves to play on the water. And there's a bit where, it's a beautiful night so she decides to let him do it and he's he's doing all this stuff that is apparently very cool and he keeps checking to see how she's doing maybe checking to see if she's watching but what we hear is that she pretended not to notice Mm. and that's the bit where I, i love like you're saying like in terms of her coming to coming to see her parents as people perhaps at the very least in that that moment i get that feeling that the kid is just just trying to pretend like she's not seeing what she's seeing she's just trying to keep her herself in the place she used to be mm. even as she's going forward um i said the thing about how the dad said the mom worried oh yeah i i delighted in the fact that the dad said the mom was worried about her because i thought that's really not the uh not what we got from the mum waving her off joyfully at the beginning of the trip no so no it, it is almost lying right hmm? is did the mum lie to the dad saying that she's worried or did the mum actually not say she was worried and so the dad is putting is projecting his worry into the mum yes, and yes. you know using that kind of like reported way of saying because he right. can't say that he loves her and he's worried about yes her. yeah yeah okay you did get there yeah, i thought it was going to be a, a somewhat unempathetic is he just lying to, to protect himself but yeah yeah the, almost like the the broke back mountain boys we were talking about like mm. yeah that is his way of displaying care and that's why i loved like to me it is almost a, a a trick of writing but also just perceptive that if you if you just had him say that and there was no moment of kind of beauty or playfulness or a sense of him trying to show off or give her something nice then you might look at that line and ultimately not allow yourself to be as sympathetic as you might because oh clearly we know the mom's not worried but putting those two things together the one hidden emotion in what he said and the other clearly displayed emotion in his action but Mm -hmm. unsaid Mm -hmm. mm, yeah it's perfect it's a really it's a very small short story but it's perfectly balanced across the relationships of these three people and it is uh i think this goes back to what we were saying initially it is full of, um, I guess, what people say to writers, the show don't tell. I mean, obviously you're writing, you literally have to tell everything because that's how you put it on the page. But the uh, the writing sidles up to what's being told. And then we infer the relationships from what is said and unsaid, from, from the way this 12-year-old girl thinks 
thinks and seems to be reasonably competent enough to row at least halfway around an archipelago. Yeah. You know, what does that say about the way she's brought up? And then most beautifully, most wonderfully comes to this moment of realization as she comes into the home um, landing area, I guess, with her dad. Mm. And she realizes that this patch of coast is just a boring patch of Finnish coast and that no one would want to come here. And she says, well, fine. If people don't know what beauty is, I'm happy to keep it for myself. And and I I just love that. Like she was appreciating her home and where she was from in a in a very sweet way. What what I loved about the way that that she she comes home is that the dad who is pulling the rowboat behind him comes in and leaves slack in the rope so that the rowboat comes in smoothly. You know, he doesn't yank it back in. And that is a is a perfect a perfect image for how yes the dad has gone out feeling the dad the dad has gone out because he's worried about her and he wants to protect her but he hasn't yanked her back he mm. hasn't you know quite done that and i it's such an important ending that really speaks to parenting right she some parents might have looked at what she did and say oh my god she's run away you made us worry you're in so much trouble but the dad does what you just described and so we get at the end of the story her sense of it almost being like a brave new dawn an exciting new exactly horizon yeah. she says dad said never do this again just so you know we said good night it was getting steadily lighter the sky was big and white as it usually is before sunrise yeah i read that in the same way almost in that in the relationship between the mom and the daughter and the the mention of how the mom couldn't have done x in her time it almost it felt like the story was like yeah but but this kid did this in her time yeah the new dawn it felt like to me it was oh it was almost like yeah every generation every every moment we're just getting a little further out a little further out yeah okay thanks for listening readers it is most likely that we still have not managed to figure out a way to talk about more than two stories in an episode. If you would like to share your opinions with us or recommend stories for future episodes, you can hit us up on Twitter. We are at Storylogical. Which is story. Like the word. Oh. Like the letter. And logical. Like Aristotle. You can follow Emma on Twitter. She is at E.G. Kosh. And you can follow Chris on Twitter. He is at Kuvals. You can find us and like us on Facebook. We are at facebook.com slash storyological. Um, and if you've enjoyed this podcast at all, not, don't only check out the Facebook group, but also head over to iTunes and leave us some stars and a review. Uh, we love it and it helps other people find us. If for some reason iTunes is against your religion, you can always climb to the top of the tallest building in your neighborhood and shout. So you see, the, the key is not to just shout from the generic rooftops. You need to mm -hmm. find the one highest roof. Let's be efficient <laughs> in our marketing here, people. Also, of course, for show notes, gifts of an appropriate and inappropriate nature, links to past episodes, and a chance to subscribe to this podcast, you can always find us at our home on the web. Storyological.com. See you next time. Happy reading. I read a quote from Hemingway this morning who was talking about, uh, I think it's a quote from Movable Feast. Ernest. I uh, know the other one. Oh, Scott Pilgrim. <laughs> Scott Pilgrim Hemingway. <laughs> that boy man uh -huh. who spent his life in pursuit. He talked about dealing with writer's block and yes. how he would go and stand on the balcony and stare into 
into the world until and think all I have to do is write one true sentence and I could always write one true sentence because uh, there's always something I'd overheard in the last day that someone had said that was real. Yep. I like it. It's, that's, uh, it's good. It is both numinous and architectural. And also indicative of, of the, the fact that writing doesn't have to be this mystical science. You know, writers steal their, their truth uh, from the world. I see what you mean. Yes. Because one could say it is kind of mystical to say all I need is one true sentence. <laughs> and from that, uh, a story might flow grow. Forth. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yes. It's reassuring that the, the doorway... The doorway to that mystical The doorway place. to truth might be eavesdropping. Yeah. Yeah. Which I do enjoy. <laughs>